Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The spirit-filled life that was spoken of in Ephesians chapter 5 is supposed to direct us to a life of submission in our homes, in our relationships, at work. Paul continues his thought from chapter 5, verse 22, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And you've got to understand that in a world and a society where women and children and slaves were little more than property, Paul is going to remind the Ephesians that God has ordered our relationships in this world. And that we're to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Now this was not a license for exploitation or manipulation or abuse. But was to serve as an opportunity again for us to love the Lord and serve the Lord Jesus. By loving and serving and respecting and cherishing the relationships that we have here on the earth. So Jesus became a child in a society that afforded children no rights. Jesus was born in the far regions of an ancient empire that afforded certain citizens rights, but other subjects little rights. It's into that world that Jesus is going to act as a slave and as a servant to minister love and healing and salvation. Jesus knew exactly what inequity, unfairness, and abusive treatment was all about. No one knows better than Jesus that sin is not fair. And it does, however, treat everyone the same. It creates slaves. Sin pays the same wages to every single person. The wages of sin is death. So some read this passage and they wonder if Paul and the Bible endorses slavery. Paul is not endorsing slavery as a necessary social evil, but rather Paul is addressing what it means to be a Christ follower in a fallen world and what our attitude is supposed to be towards one another. Remember what we've been trying to learn that the purity of heart and the humility of heart and the unity that we experience together, if you don't have unity in the home and if you don't have some sort of 
decent workplace, it's going to be very, very difficult at church. And so Paul isn't addressing the wrongness of an abusive relationship. What he is doing is he's inviting us to change our attitude and our heart about any given situation. John MacArthur writes about this issue. He says, quote, New Testament teaching does not focus on reforming and restructuring human systems, which are never the root cause of human problems. The issue is always the heart, which when wicked will corrupt the best system, and when righteous will improve the worst. Pause for a moment with this quote. What he's basically saying is, imagine you have a really bad government. I know some of you are looking at me, that's easy to do. That's easy for me to imagine. Because of that, again, does this mean that we're to abandon what the Bible says about our relationship towards the government? Or imagine you're in a less than ideal marriage. Does the fact that you're in a less than an ideal marriage mean that we should abandon the biblical principles surrounding marriage? Imagine that you have a child who is less than subjected and submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Does that mean we stop having children? And so, again, imagine you're in a job and the job isn't exactly the kind of job that you would want. Paul is inviting us to examine ourselves. Again, we go back to, to John MacArthur who says, if men's hearts are not changed, they will find ways to oppress others regardless of whether or not there is actual slavery, unquote. And he's exactly right. So when you're in an abusive relationship, it can consume you. And we can see abusive relationships in government, in the home, and at work, but man's greatest oppression comes from sin, and man's greatest humiliation isn't simply child abuse, or spousal abuse, or employer abuse. It's the abuse that sin heaps on the soul, and the greatest punishment isn't physical pain or emotional pain. The greatest punishment is a Christless hell apart from God for all eternity. And you see, this is why the gospel invites us not to just become better at home or better at work, but it's inviting us into a radical relationship with a God who saves us. In other words, the Bible isn't just simply looking for you to be a better husband or a better wife or a better employer or a better employee. It's inviting you to embrace what it means to be radically changed through the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why we need a savior. And once we have a savior, the message of the Bible is that sin need no longer have the upper hand. Sin no longer has to have the power to grip our lives, destroy our families, or make us miserable. Sin makes its way into the home and the workplace. And Jesus wants you to be the most God-honoring Christ-honoring citizen, husband, wife, child, employee, employer. 
I'm going to ask you a question, but you don't have to shout it out. Sometimes I'm going to invite you to shout it out, but sometimes I'm going to ask you to keep the answer quietly inside of your head. Have you ever had a nightmare job? One of those kinds of job where you had a boss who drove you to tears or an employee that gave you ulcers. Because you see, with the exception of marriage, there's no other issue that can cause so much pain and anxiety as what's generated in the workplace. Sometimes people feel trapped in their job. They feel hopeless and helpless. People with no job feel the anxiety and the pressure of unemployment. And so, again, the dream is to find a job where you can exercise your skills and, and, and utilize your gifts. I can remember when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And my English teacher would say to me, do you know, will you please shut up? People don't want to hear you talk. And I thought, can you get a job where that's what you do? You talk? My teacher said, do you think people are going to pay to hear you speak? I go, are there jobs like that? Because if there are jobs like that, that's the kind of job that I want to have. And isn't that the American dream? It's to find your, it's, it's what you would do for free if you could find someone stupid enough to pay you money to do what you would do for free. Paul is reminding the Ephesians that God knows our circumstance, wants to honor him no matter what our current employment situation is. So God wants us to honor him even when we work with or for people who dishonor him. So once again, Christians are called to be different. We're to be different in, in the home. We're to be different in the workplace obedient, respectful, conscientious, diligent, cheerful. So look at verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now Paul is going to use four adverbs to describe a slave's attitude and action towards the boss or the master. Slaves slash employees were to obey and serve with respect, with sincerity, conscientiously, pleasantly. The word that is the very first word in, in the Greek language as well, doulos. The word bondservant meant slave. Now again, in our culture and society, we would think, They've outlawed slavery, and so this whole passage is sort of much ado about nothing. Well, doulos meant a slave by choice, or it could mean a slave not according to choice. How many of you work because you want to? How many of you work because you have to? Yeah, we see more hands go up because you... So you have two kinds of jobs. Jobs that you want to have and jobs that you need to have. And so when Paul is using the term bond slave, we have to understand again in part what it meant. One, one uh, Greek scholar, Zodiades, says, quote, a bond servant or is one who is in a permanent relationship of servitude 
to another, his will being altogether consumed in the will of the other, unquote. Now, again, most people aren't slaves unless you work at Chick-fil-A. No, I'm just teasing. I love Chick-fil-A. Think that they're a wonderful organization and have great employee practices. But imagine you're in the military. And for certain government workers, there's a certain slavish mentality that begins to develop. Depending on context, the do loss can mean a slave by choice. It can speak of a person who is in contrast with a free person. It can involve involuntary servitude or voluntary servitude. And what I want to point out to you is this is the word that Paul uses to describe himself in relationship to Jesus. He is a slave. He is a slave by choice. He voluntarily has taken his life, his being, every, his will, and everything about him, and he has subjected it to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The New Testament has more to say to slaves than they do to kings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul will write, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He's living in a world where there are some 70 million slaves. And as you can imagine, the message of Christ and the gospel of Jesus, can you imagine living in a world where there was very little hope and then all of a sudden you hear a message of hope that there's a God who loves you, who's willing to forgive you, and that if you will love him and serve him, he's going to reward you. And so... Slaves and masters were common in the Greek and the Roman society. And by the way, a person could become a slave usually in one of three ways. Number one, by birth to slave parents. If your mom and your dad were slaves, when you were born in a household, guess what? You were a slave. Number two, you could become a slave by being sold in order to satisfy a debt. Now, I want you to think about this because in certain ways in this culture, even though you were a citizen or a non-citizen, you could sell your children in order to satisfy a debt. The third way is that you were captured during a time of war or you were enslaved by a conquering army. Every single civilization in the Mediterranean Rim practiced at least certain forms of slavery. Now, in some cases, particularly in the Roman and the Greek world, a slave could purchase their freedom or redemption through employment or stewardship. And so often in the Bible, you'll read about a person who's what's called a free man. A free man is a person who purchased his freedom and secured his citizenship. Many young men would join the Roman army as a means, uh, as a path to citizenship. And so slaves in this particular culture could actually purchase other slaves. 
Sometimes slaves made more money than their masters. And so slaves would be sent to school, to Athens or to Alexandria. And so a slave could be a person who teaches rhetoric or like Luke would be a physician and a household physician. A slave could be a person who is the steward over large and vast estates. And so Christian slaves in the ancient world brought way more money than their pagan counterparts. Probably because of this passage. Because this was read and people believed it. It made me think, do Christians command a higher premium in today's workforce? In other words, are you more likely or less likely to be hired because you're a Christian? Or is that even something that people think about? When people are considering you for employment, do they think, I think I'm going to hire you because you have a reputation for honesty or decency. My oldest son, the very first job that he had, or maybe it was his second job out of high school, was he worked at the Shane Company. He was 18 years old. He didn't know very much about jewels and jewelry. But his first day on the job, he walks into a safe where there's $40 million dollars worth of diamonds, gold, and precious gems. Do you know why they hired my son? They hired him because of his commitment to integrity, because they had every reason to believe that he isn't going to steal from them. And so, we see real respect and not just a resume. So when Paul writes, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Look what it says, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. And so he's talking about earthly things. Because throughout the passage and later on, we're going to discover that each and every one of us who names the name of Christ has a master who is in heaven all Christians without exception who truly love the Lord, if they believe that the Bible is true, concede that Jesus is their master according to the spirit. But some of us have masters according to the flesh. We have a job. We have people that we have to report to. We have people who are supervising. And so the first element in, in, in a godly work ethic according to Paul, is obedience. And by the way, it's the same word that Paul uses earlier to describe children in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So Paul uses the same for masters according to the flesh in this world. The master here is the person who has the lawful function of supervising you or your work. And so he says, obey them with fear and trembling. Literally, it means respect and fear. It, do, it, it means reverence and respect for the person's position and authority. It doesn't mean that when your boss walks into the room, you're supposed to click your knees together and, and tremble and shake because today might be the day that he or she fires you. That's not the point. It means reverence and respect. 
My son's a captain in the army, and one of the times when we went to visit him, we visited the base, and in the military, subordinate officers are, are you know, they salute the superior officer. And so he would be walking along, and people would salute him, and if someone was a higher rank, he would salute them. All the conversation that took place was direct and respectful. I think that that's what Paul has in mind. In other words, you, with respect, you acknowledge you're direct and you're respectful. So most slaves, as Paul is writing these words, I want you to just think about this for a moment. The vast majority of people that Paul is writing to in Ephesus have unbelieving masters. But there are people in the church who are believing masters. And so most slaves would have had unbelieving masters. So Paul's command isn't based on the spiritual condition of the person being respected, but rather on the relationship, the physical relationship after the flesh. Just like in the military. When you're in the military, do you salute the person or the rank? You're saluting the rank. Is it possible you're saluting a person and they're a dirtbag? For those of you who've been in the military, you go, yeah, that's entirely possible. But you respect the office and you respect the rank. And so then there's sincerity at the end of the verse. With fear and trembling in sincerity. That word means uncorrupted, not mixed. It comes from another Latin root word. Sine, sire. Sine is the word no. And sire is wax. And so in the ancient world, you know, when they would, they didn't have photography back in those days. So if you wanted a, a statue of your mom, your dad, or your cousin, or your uncle, they would make a little statue. And then they would chisel it out of marble. And marble is somewhat fragile. And sometimes, you know, can you imagine you're chiseling on the face and you pop off the nose and nobody's looking. And so you take some marble powder with wax and you stick the nose back on and you go so that you don't have to redo the entire statue. Well, you can imagine when the statue gets out in the sun, the, mat, the wax starts to melt and the nose falls off and you realize you just got ripped off. So the word sine sire came to mean a word that in the marketplace, what you see is what you get. In other words, th th that this is true. There's no cracks or, or, or something that would make this other than what it really is. Paul is in effect saying, don't withhold your best. Give your best. If you're giving an hour's wage, put in an hour's work. We do our jobs with humility and honor and honesty. And then Paul provides the motivation as to Christ. In other words, Paul is giving every single Christian in every age to permission to think to himself or herself, I work for Jesus. It may look like I work at Walmart. It may look like I work at Target. It may look like I work fill in the blank, but I work for Jesus. So once again, Paul breaks the ancient mold. In the real world employment, you give respect 
you get respect. Paul reminds us that we're to serve apart from the worthiness or the unworthiness of the employer. We serve Christ. Our desire isn't to please the company or please the supervisor. We exist to please the Lord Jesus. And so he talks about sincerity and conscientious in verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now I want you to note something, particularly for the person who's wondering, well, what if they're asking me to do weird things? What if they're asking me to do wicked things? What if they're asking me to do sinful things? Paul isn't assuming weird things, sinful things, wicked things, because we're given clues in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, look what it says, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, um, with good will, doing service as to the Lord. Verse 8, whatever Good. The implication being what you're doing is honest, appropriate, consistent with moral virtue, if you will. And so the term I service is a compound Greek word. And most of you are going to know this word. If you've ever gone to an ophthalmologist, you know that that's an eye doctor. This word is Ophthamodulia. It means service that is performed to gain attention. So it was a Greek word that was used to describe a person who would basically say, look at me. For those of you who have children or grandchildren, I'm sure that you've had your child or your grandchild say to you, look at me, look at me. That's the idea. And so it's service that's performed only to gain intention, not for the sake or to please God or one's own conscience. That's the meaning. And so Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 as well. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and so we're given permission to respect our employers, even in difficult circumstances. And so again, for those of you who are struggling where you go, you know what? It's hard for me to have any kind of real respect for the person that I'm working for. Well, that may be. But Jesus is giving you permission to respect them, not only when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Jesus. There are employees who are all action when the boss is around. But as soon as the boss leaves, so does the work. Suddenly there's no industry, no enthusiasm, no heart. And so again, for those people who think that God has use for laziness and sloth, you misunderstand both God's character 
and God's word. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, there were two servants who were, who were given five talents and two talents. They went to work immediately, even though the master was gone on a long journey. When the master returned, he praised them for their industry. Remember, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servants. But the slave who did nothing with his charge, with his stewardship, the one servant who buried his talent, the master gave him a scathing rebuke. He called him, you wicked and lazy servant in Matthew's gospel. So there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a faithful, lazy servant or a lazy, faithful servant, however you want to put the two words together. So if you have a job, if you have a crummy job, if you have a dead-end job, you're to work with energy, with enthusiasm, with diligence. You're to constantly remind yourself, Jesus is my supervisor. Jesus is going to do my work performance evaluation. Jesus is watching me. It doesn't matter if the boss is present or absent. The principle is to work as if you are working for Jesus. So when you make that specialty drink, you're making it for Jesus. When you're serving that food, you're serving it for Jesus. When you're sweeping that floor or vacuuming that carpet, you're doing it for Jesus. Because in the end... He's the boss, and we can do little things for Jesus or great things for Jesus. But imagine if Jesus were here and Jesus said, Hey, could you get me a glass of water? How many of you would gladly get him a glass of water? Of course, one hand went up. Well, I'm glad at least one person would gladly give Jesus a glass of water. If Jesus were hungry and he said, hey, could maybe make me breakfast or? Again, th that's the idea. And so the, the next thing is goodwill. Look what it says in verse 7. With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Goodwill, by the way, means a pleasant and cheerful attitude. Again, I go to Chick-fil-A and I'll get a half sweet, half unsweet iced tea. And I'll go, thank you. And the young girl or the young man will always say, my pleasure. <laughs> and I'm thinking, does he mean that? Does she mean that? Well, guess what? Whether you mean it or not, they always, with a smile, look you in the eye and go, my pleasure. And whether you're doing it for real or you're doing it in the fakiest way possible. Jesus is inviting you to serve with goodwill. It means that we perform our tasks as if we were personally serving Jesus. Again, imagine you're a ticket taker at United. And all of a sudden Jesus is in line and he goes... Hey, I'd like to book a flight to Jerusalem. And you go, it's Jesus in the line. 
Can you imagine you're at McDonald's and Jesus walks up and he goes, I'll have a sausage biscuit. And you go, you're not Jesus because that's not kosher. If it were really Jesus, then he would order the right food. But here's the, perform- here's the idea. Since Jesus is going to give the ultimate reward or the ultimate punishment, it's what he thinks that matters the most. And for that reason, we can go about our task with smiles, happy to be serving the Lord. We've all met lemon-sucking people who, no matter what you do, you can't force a smile on their face. It's, it's like your interaction is, what, am I playing a game? Make me laugh? Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to do my very best to see if I can get you to raise those sides of your face into a smile. A little boy innocently said to his father, Dad, why do all the idiots and jerks come out when mommy drives? (laughs) He's saying, you know, she's driving along and all of these things are happening. But think about it. If the children are listening, isn't the Lord listening? And in verse 8, it says, knowing that whatever good anyone does... He will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. The idea being the Lord is at work evaluating our life, evaluating what we do. So we're not simply paid in cash benefits. The Christian may be paid once a week or, or twice a month, but in the end, our ultimate payday, Paul invites us to imagine an ultimate payday where everything that we've said and everything that we've done is going to be rewarded or not rewarded. Because everything that we do is going to fall into the category of wood, hay, and stubble. Or gold and silver and precious stones. In this world we may receive limited praise. Or limited reward. Or limited recognition. But there may be rewards along the way. Tokens of the Lord's affection. Tokens when all of a sudden, not only did you get what you earned, but all of a sudden someone said, you know what, we're giving you a bonus. Or we're giving you this, or we're giving you that. And you go, thank you, Jesus. And your boss says, wait a minute, I'm the one who gave it to you. And, and you can go, thank you too. <laughs> you don't have to say, hey, no, I'm going to give Jesus the thanks. No, you can still be nice to your boss. We're going to receive a reward in heaven. Think about what you've just read. Based on not simply our faithfulness, but also on our cheerfulness. We're giving an amazing insight. 
There's no distinction in God's eyes between a full-time minister or a part-time minister. There's no division between the sacred and the secular. Paul drops the wall and informs every single person reading this passage that each and every one of us are going to receive a work performance evaluation from Jesus. It's not the pastor who works for Jesus. It isn't the full-time minister who works for Jesus. It's every single person who identifies himself or herself as a Jesus lover and a Jesus follower. And so the standard of evaluation is quite apart from social circumstances. Paul writes, whether slave or free. Now, here's the difference, I think. The difference is, you would think that the free person who is free to do what he or she wants will have it much easier. And the slave is going to have it more difficult. But Jesus doesn't differentiate between slavery or freedom when it comes to the evaluation. I remember a story in the South of this man who was the owner of a rather large plantation and he had a great deal of slaves and, uh, and he wasn't exactly kind to his slaves. But this one man was so wonderful, sweet. He was the picture of this passage. He submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And no matter what this person would do to him, he couldn't rattle him. He loved the Lord. Everything he did, he was as unto the Lord. And the plantation owner got so angry. And he said, I want what you want. And he goes, okay, you can have what I have. If you'll get down here in the mud and work with me. You're a slave and I'm the master. I'm not going to do it. He goes, okay. And he comes back the next day and he goes, I want what you want. He goes, same thing I told you yesterday. Come down here in the mud and work with me and you, you can have it. And they come, he comes back the third day and goes, I'm not fooling with you. I want what you have. And he goes, then you have to come down here in the mud and work with me. And he goes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he gets off of his horse and he said to his master, you don't really have to do it. You just had to want to do it. And then he told him about what it meant to have a right relationship with God, how God loves him, how his sins could be forgiven, how Jesus could come into his life and change him from the inside out. Can you imagine? This was the story of the early church as slaves began to talk to their mistresses and masters about the incredible change that had taken place in their life. Now remember, let's connect the dots here. Remember what I told you? What is the most powerful tool a wife has to change her husband's heart? Submission. What's the most powerful tool that parents have To change their child's heart. Submission. What's the most powerful tool a child has to change their parent's heart? Submission. What's the most powerful tool 
<laughs> that an employee has to change their employer's heart. Submission. And so look what it says, masters, a biblical management guide for employers. Look what it says in verse 9. And you masters, do the same things to them. Think about how radical that what he just said. What has he asked them to do? What has he asked the slave to do to the master? Sincerity, goodwill, obedience, cheerfulness. And now he says to the masters, and you masters, do the same to them. Do you realize what a radical statement that is? Giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Note what he's saying. In the world, in the social world in which we live, in Rome, in Greece, in first century Rome, are there social and cultural expectations? Yes, there are. But Paul is making it clear that in the church, those expectations do not exist because in the church, there's neither slave nor free, male or female, Greek or barbarian. We're all one in Christ. We come in to the same place. We have the same master. We're all going to have to give an account to this singular Lord. And so he's basically saying, how do you want Jesus to, to treat you on the day of reckoning? He's basically saying to the masters, or in this case, maybe the employer, However you want Jesus to treat you, treat them. Now, I want to put this in perspective for you. Imagine that you work somewhere, and you're given immediate supervision over the boss's daughter. Is that going to affect the way you treat her? You might say, no, I'm going to treat her the same as I do every other person. Well, yeah, if you treat them with honesty and fairness, and equity, all of those things are good, but are you going to be tempted to be rude and discourteous and abusive to the boss's daughter? I would hope not. The ungodly boss wants results, and you masters do the same to them, giving up threatening. The godly boss wants faithfulness. So Paul, in one sweeping statement, applies the same expectations to employers. You do the same, and again, it's a revolutionary concept. In the unbelieving world, slaves had no expectation that they would be treated with fairness and kindness. You live in a culture and a society where there is that expectation of fairness and kindness. If you work for Anyone who has any decency whatsoever. Can your boss commit crimes against you? No. Can they chain you to the wall? Well, they can make me work overtime. I didn't ask you that. <laughs> Think about what Paul is saying. He's advising Christian masters to treat their slaves saved or unsaved, in the same way and with the same concern that would reflect God's will and that would reflect 
God's glory and would reflect God's character. In the ancient world, slaves could sometimes become free. And it was really difficult to rise above social circumstances, but it was entirely possible. And sometimes slaves would become the pastors of their church. I suspect that that's exactly what happened in the New Testament in the story of Philemon and Onesimus, the runaway slave. Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. He runs away to Rome. He gets gloriously saved. He becomes convicted and condemned because he not only perhaps stole from his master, but he was a slave on the lamb. And now Jesus had come into his life and Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And in that culture and society, you could brand him with a wicked F on his forehead, which would stand for the Latin word fugitivus. It was the word that would describe a runaway slave. And so if you were walking through the marketplace and you saw a person with an F branded on their forehead, you knew that they were a runaway slave. Paul says to Philemon, I'm begging you. Treat him the way you would treat me. If if I've done anything for you, If I've ever done any kindness to you, I'm begging you, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. We have every reason to believe that Onesimus will eventually become the pastor in the Lycus Valley of what's going to be the future town of Colossae. So when Paul writes his little letter to the book that you and I call Colossians, it's probably to this household because when Paul is in prison in Rome, he's writing the letter of Philemon and Colossians and it's probably being delivered by a slave. And look what he says. Paul advises them, don't threaten them. Can you imagine? Abandon coercion as a business strategy. Don't threaten them. Now, Paul isn't endorsing rebellion or abandonment of the social order. He's not talking about a revolution. He tells them that they have a master in heaven. He, he, he also says to them, look, coercion doesn't work. Don't threaten them. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. If Paul is telling masters not to threaten the slaves Do you think God is in heaven thinking of ways that he wants to threaten you? Unless you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to break your arm. I'm going to break your leg. I'm going to make you lose your job. I'm going to give you cancer. I'm going to suggest to you that horrible and terrible things sometimes happen to us. And I'm also going to suggest to you that God will convict us. And that judgment That grace precedes judgment. There does come a time when rebellion and disobedience is going to have to take effect. But but I'm going to suggest to you again that Paul isn't saying that employers have to abandon employee discipline. But he's basically saying to them, treat them the way you want to be treated. 
We are to treat our employees as men and women created in the image of God. Christian employers are to be fair, honest, kind. The biblical principle is, do you want the best from your people? Then be the best to your people. So Christian employers aren't going to erase the social or the cultural distinctions by their Christianity. Servants are going to still be servants. Masters are still going to be masters. Employers are going to still be employers. Employees are still going to be employees. But what Jesus is doing is he's basically saying there can be harmony if both of you will treat each other the way Jesus treats you. And now all of a sudden we see the theme, don't we? Harmony, unity, purity. Because remember, what happens in the home affects the church. What happens at work affects the church. This doesn't mean, again, like I said, that an employer can't exercise discipline, but it must mean, it must mean that an employer should never resort to physical violence or verbal threats. If you want what's best for your employees, don't threaten them. Don't exploit them. Like parents, employers are in a position of power. And like parents, they shouldn't use their power to abuse or berate, but to lead, to guide, to guard employers and employees are equal in the sight of God. Now think about it. Do the math in the passage. Husbands and wives, equal in the sight of God. Parents and children, equal in the sight of God. Masters and slaves, equal in the sight of God. In the Bible, Boaz would greet his workers with, the Lord be with you. Boaz was sensitive to workers, generous with strangers. Christian masters read employees or employers, respect and glorify God. One of the saddest thing a person could say, with the most horrible thing that I can imagine anyone saying to me is, my boss is supposed to be a Christian. Ouch. He must not threaten. Roman masters had the lawful authority to punish. Now, for those of you who are thinking, well, could they cripple them, abuse them, and kill them? They could, but, but you don't. It would be like, imagine you have a brand new Toyota 4Runner, and all of a sudden it doesn't start. Do you kick it? Do you throw a brick through the windshield? Do you damage the car because you're upset with the car? Do you take a prize racehorse and cripple it? No. Even in that culture and society, they understood that if you crippled your slave, you were actually destroying your revenue. They cost way too much money to kill or cripple. Fear doesn't produce work. Fear has the capacity to limit work. And so in Colossians 4.1, Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair. 
I'm going to repeat it. Colossians 4.1, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul's point, masters, servants, accountable to God. If a man shares in the results of the labor, he's going to work harder. Leviticus 25.43, this isn't a New Testament concept. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear the Lord. Proverbs 14.23, in all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads to poverty. In the Old Testament, work brought profit. Talk brought poverty. That's probably why I should have gotten a job that I didn't talk so much. The point, Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. But so are the people in the world. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Most of the people in the world aren't going to come to our church and watch you sitting in your seat. They aren't going to watch you with your Bible open in your lap. They're not going to show up at the men's Bible study or the women's Bible study or the student ministries. They're, going to, they're not going to show up when you're at Saturday morning men's breakfast. They're going to watch you at work. And they're going to decide what you're really like by watching you at work. And so Satan wants to undermine your identity in Christ. Satan wants to exploit our inconsistencies at home and at work. But Paul is trying to make it abundantly clear. We need humility in our heart. We need unity in our church. We need purity in our life home, at work, in our family, in our church. Remember, your Christian life, it's evaluated by how it begins, how it continues, and how it ends. Paul began the letter by describing the Christian, the Christian's blessings in Christ. He continued by declaring the Christian's behavior must be in Christ. He talked about mystical relationships and moral relationships and marital relationships and material relationships. But now he's going to end the section. He's going to dedicate this last portion as a description of the Christian's battles, spiritual warfare. In this last portion, he's going to invite us to assess our enemy. And then he's going to give us a battle plan to assail that enemy. At the very end, he's going to tell us, now, based on everything that I've told you, I want you to understand something. This is going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to live this Christian witness in your family, in the workplace, in the very real world. Satan is going to try and mess you up. 
but God has an answer. And so next week, we're going to have this time of prayer and praise and power. And then we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. So you ready? Lord, help us. Lord, it makes perfect sense that you want humility and purity and unity. Lord, we're willing to concede that we don't always have that. And Lord, we know that in order to have that, some things are going to have to change. I'm going to have to be different. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me. Lord, I pray that you would, like David said, search me, know me, try me, see if there's some wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray for their homes. I pray for their jobs. I pray for their work and their witness. Lord, I pray that as they face some very, very difficult circumstances, that now, Lord, we could become equipped so that we could deal with the very real challenges that Satan wants to throw our way. But, Lord, we know that we're in Christ. Lord, we're born again. We've been saved by the Holy Spirit. We've been cleansed from our sin. We've been washed. And then we've been seated in heavenly places. And so, Lord, again, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would grant us the ability not to become better people so that you'll accept us, but that, Lord, we would be, become men and women who reflect the love of God and the faithfulness of God and the belief that Jesus really does change us because we've been born again because we've been filled with the Spirit, because you have given us this great privilege to love you and to serve you, to worship you and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's stand.